If you have a Bible with you, you can open to the book of Titus, chapter 1, Paul's letter to Titus. We'll look at verses 5 through 16 this morning, and uh, the text is also printed in the bulletin as usual. This month we're looking very briefly at uh, church leadership, particularly at the offices of elder and deacon as we prepare for officer nominations next month through the month of February. Uh, And this series is meant to give us all a good idea of what the Bible tells us to look for in our leaders. Last week we looked at Paul's really general vision as a leader in the church from 1 Corinthians 2 where he says that he determined to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And for Paul, um, something just isn't worth saying or doing unless it points to the gospel of Jesus from the scriptures, unless it applies God's redeeming grace to our sins and our weaknesses, unless it calls attention to the, the glory of God's sacrificial love for us. We talked about how this is an attitude or a devotion that really um, ought to characterize all Christians in the church, but that must necessarily characterize the leaders in the church. Um, And over the next few weeks, we'll discuss more specifically the offices of elder and deacon, which are the two biblical offices recognized by our church. This week, we'll look at the qualifications uh, that Paul provides in Titus 1 for the office of elder. Next week, remember, we're meeting for joint worship service with Evergreen, uh, where Nathan Lewis will preach from Isaiah chapter 2. And the following Sunday, we'll be back here and we'll uh, pick up and talk about elders again from 1 Timothy 3, and then finish the series, finish the the last Sunday in January talking about deacons from 1 Timothy 3. Let me just say, as we look at the lists of the qualifications that Paul provides, uh, we're not looking at behaviors somehow that are separate from the vision that we discussed last week in 1 Corinthians 2. We're not going to say, you know, generally speaking, a church leader should be gospel-centered, but he also has to have his act together in these ways. He also has to be a really good person. Um, Instead, the way we're going to think about it is that if if someone is actually gospel-centered, if someone is determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, then these are the kinds of qualities that arise in that person's life. And these qualities, these traits, have to be there as indicators that God's grace really is at work in his life. The gospel really is the vision of his life in a way that qualifies him to be a leader in the church. Again, we all ought to strive to let the gospel shape us and mold us in these ways. But Paul really is laying out for us here the fact that these are requirements uh, for those who are in leadership. This morning, we're going to focus on Paul's description of elders in, uh, in his letter to Titus as those who hold firm to the word of God and teach it for the good of the church. Uh, so let's pray and then we'll read from Titus. God, we've come here this morning to meet with you, to hear from you, to be changed by you. Uh, we can't uh, do anything to... Um, Initiate our relationship with you, initiate change in our own lives, uh, make, us, make ourselves worthy of your attention and your favor, but uh, you have freely given us your favor through Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would once again come, that you would uh, pour your spirit on us, 
so that our minds and our hearts and our whole lives would be changed by your gospel, by your grace, by your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul and Titus uh, had done evangelism together on the island of Crete. And they had started a few churches in the different cities there. But Paul had to leave the island uh, before he was able to appoint elders to lead the churches, which was his custom, his kind of his goal um, with church planting. So he had left young Titus in charge of that. As his own representative says in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And he wrote this letter not just for Titus's sake, uh, but for the churches too, so that they would hear that Titus was exercising Paul's own authority as he taught and as he organized the churches in Crete. So even though Paul is addressing Titus directly, He wants the churches to hear what he has to say, right? Especially about the requirements in our passage for those who would be potential elders. Um, A few basic ideas first, uh, just really briefly. The word that Paul uses for elders in verse 5 is presbyteros, from which we get um, the term presbyopia, which is uh, farsightedness related to old age. Uh, it's also the word that we get Presbyterian from. Um, it basically means old man, right? Uh, pres- presbyteros means old man. Though it probably is meant, it's used here by Paul to highlight the experience of a man rather than necessarily referring to his age. Um, presbyters or elders, they don't have to be old, uh, which is demonstrated by the fact that Titus, a, a younger man who had a good ministry experience serving with Paul is left in charge of appointing elders by Paul, which means he probably was to be considered an elder himself. So Titus had ministry experience, and, um, and he was young. 
So in verse 7, Paul uses another word to describe the same office, the English word overseer. Maybe it shows up differently in your translations, but uh, the, the ESV text printed in the bulletin says overseer. And that translates the word episkopos, um, episcopalian, right? Which gets more to the concept of someone uh, with authority to govern in the church, right? An overseer, it's like a manager, it's a steward. So the office that we're talking about has to do with experience, a good track record in ministry, and authority to manage and govern the church. The scriptures teach that this office is open to male members of the church. That's something that's implicit in Paul's statement in verse 6. He says that the husband of one wife, um, and it's made more explicit elsewhere in his teachings. Let me just give an aside. This is not something that we believe is true, that, that uh, elders should be men only, um, because we think men are in any way better than women. Uh, that's not why we believe that, but really it, it's uh, the plain teaching of God's word that, that men and women off, uh, occupy different roles in the church and in marriages, and the trick is doing that in submission to God's will without abusing our positions, without abusing that authority. Uh, but that's for another sermon, really. <clears throat> the elder is a public office, and so the congregation participates in the process of an elder being nominated and elected. This concept comes across in verse 6, uh, where Paul writes uh, sort of the introductory, maybe even a summary qualification. If anyone is above reproach, above reproach. This doesn't mean uh, the guy is perfect, because really that is impossible. Um, it means that he's got an untarnished reputation, that it's marred by no disgrace. There's no scandal in his life that someone can point to. Uh, no one has grounds for public accusations against him. And the congregation has to participate in that, right? Uh, it's a public reputation that he's got. So a basic description of what an elder in the church is is a man with a good reputation and an effective ministry as a Christian who is given authority to lead in the church. Now, Paul writes a whole list of ways to recognize a potential elder, but we're actually going to leave off um, on most of it until next time because much of it is similar or even identical to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. Um, what I want to focus on this morning is the elder as a teacher. Um, and I don't just mean getting up and saying stuff on Sunday mornings, type of teacher. Uh, I mean counseling and discipleship and evangelism and brief conversations over coffee after worship and uh, whatever other ways that elders are to guide and help the church by teaching the word of God. Uh, John Stott said that the, the main function of an elder is to care for God's people by teaching them. And uh, verse 9 of our text, Paul writes, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the ability to teach um, is a distinguishing mark of elders. And this ability to teach comes from holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. This means that the elder has to know his Bible, and more than that, he has to cling to it. 
He has to hold firm to it. This kind of Bible knowledge is not simply data type of knowledge, right? Uh, it doesn't just mean he's got a lot of verses memorized. It doesn't just mean he can recite all the uh, books of the Bible in order, their titles, or that he always nails the Bible questions in trivial pursuit, right? It's not that kind of knowledge. Uh, those things are helpful, but, uh, but who do you see in the Gospels who can do all that? It's the Pharisees, right? It's the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not a mere knowledge of biblical data that is important. An elder has to understand the Bible's message. Understand the Bible's message of God's grace. And cling to it for dear life, for his own life, and for the life of the church that he serves. It's like we talked about last week. The whole Bible is about our need for mercy and it's all about God's provision of it in Christ. The whole Bible is about Jesus as our Redeemer. And the elder has to have a firm grasp on that dynamic for two reasons, Paul says. To keep people healthy, sound in their doctrine. And to stand up to people who would distort the Bible's message. Uh, John Calvin wrote that a pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Um, Paul continues on in verse 10 for because the elder has to do this because there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach so this whole paragraph this whole second paragraph of our text is often ignored in discussions about the qualifications for elders in the church, right? Focus on the first paragraph, or we focus on the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3, just the list, you know, check, check boxes, kind of list. I think it's crucial that we talk about this, because an elder's ability to discern and refute the kind of error that Paul is talking about here shows his appreciation for the gospel. It shows his connection to the gospel, his dependence on the gospel, which really is the only thing the, uh, the elder has to offer the church. It's the gospel. So what kind of error is Paul addressing here? What kind of error is he saying that elders need to be able to, to see and to refute? Um, we don't know the details exactly of what the bad guys were teaching, um, but I think we have enough hints here and there in Paul's writings to put it under the broad category of legalism. Right? They're of the circumcision party, verse 10. They've got a particularly Jewish flavor, verse 14. They focus on what Paul calls the commands of people, the commandments of men. They're apparently concerned with purity. And they profess to know God, but in reality don't know God. And all these things sound remarkably similar to Jesus' indictments of the Pharisees for their legalism uh, when they require the strict observance of the commandments of men. Or uh, to Paul's indictments in Galatians of the Judaizers who demand circumcision and certain forms of ritual purity. Or when Paul refutes in Colossians the regulations of asceticism that are uh, according to human precepts, or to Paul's description of false teachers in 1 Timothy 4, which is probably the closest parallel. 
uh, and these people forbid marriage and they require observance of dietary laws. Wherever Paul went, uh, once he started preaching the gospel of grace, Jewish legalists almost immediately started persecuting him publicly and trying to teach the churches their distortion of what he had said, their distortion of the word of God. Paul was constantly misunderstood by legalists, was constantly accused of being antinomian or against the law because he taught freedom from the power of the law, freedom from the condemnation of the law through the gracious sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. Paul knew that the greatest enemy that the church faced and still faces, it's not immorality, it's legalism. Because legalism parades itself around as Christianity, when in reality it's diametrically opposed to Christianity. A really basic definition of legalism is this. To be good, you have to blank. Or you have to not blank. <laughs> right? To be good, to be okay with God, to feel good about yourself, to be right with God, uh, to get ahead in life, be good in other people's estimation of you, you have to do things and not do these things. Right? At its root, um, legalism is self-salvation. It's self-righteousness. It's self-rule. It's an attempt to be autonomous from God spiritually. The legalist is setting himself up so he won't need God or his grace. Right? In fact, the mere idea of grace is a threat to his self-righteousness because it implies that he's not good enough to earn God's favor. So the legalist resists the gospel. He actually actively fights it in his own heart and in the way that he communicates his ideas about religion to other people. The legalist in the church creates a certain atmosphere of expectations that need to be met. There's really no question about it, he says. Good Christians get their baby boys circumcised and don't eat pork. Good Christians obey all of God's law. Good Christians have lots and lots of kids and they raise them in such and such a way and they send them to this and that school. Good Christians only listen to certain kinds of music and they only watch movies with certain ratings. Good Christians never drink, smoke, chew, or date the girls who do. Good Christians recycle and drive hybrids. Good Christians are Republicans who care about freedom and rights. Good Christians are Democrats who care more about people than money. Good Christians don't hang out with people who cuss and sit. Good Christians are righteous because they do blank and don't do blank. And that's legalism. That's uh, self-righteousness. And we use it all the time to try to feel good about ourselves, about our relationship with God, or to set ourselves apart from other people. Uh, legalistic people are afraid of being contaminated by other people. Afraid of being contaminated by the world. Afraid that their moral superiority will be corrupted by sinners. We think we can purify ourselves by staying away from impure people. We're better than them. They're the bad ones. 
We fixed ourselves by not being like them, and we call that being a Christian. That's why the Judaizers in Galatia withdrew from the Gentiles at the table. And that's why we don't hang out with our liberal neighbors. That's why we don't have any gay friends. And that's why we don't talk to bums on the street. We just don't have anything in common with them. We have everything in common with them. The only thing that distinguishes us from them is God's mercy. But when you look for things that you do or don't do to set yourself apart from others, to make yourself good, then that's a rejection of God's mercy. While pretending to keep God's law or some version of it that you've come up with, it's professing to know God but denying him by your works, by the way that you use your works to keep God at arm's length. And that's legalism, it's self-justification. Jesus condemns it as hypocrisy. Paul declares it anathema and tells Titus to make sure that elders can detect that and call it out. Right? Because it is insidious, it's infectious, and it has the potential to overthrow whole families in the church. And generally, generally religious people have a hard time detecting legalism because religious legalism feels a lot like true spirituality, doesn't it? I mean, you do want to keep God's law, don't you? You are concerned with things like moral purity and holiness, aren't you? Yes, so is the Apostle Paul. <laughs> After all, being upright and holy made the list of elder qualifications. But if you're looking to get right with God or to stay right with God uh, by any behavior of yours, you just denied God. Because God is the one who's clearly stated there is no way you could ever be good enough for him. And even though that's true, he has graciously bestowed his full acceptance on you through his son. Jesus is the only one who ever kept God's, perfect, God's law perfectly. And his law keeping, his righteousness counts for you. And your disobedience counted against him. He hung on the cross in your place under God's anger for sin and died the death you deserve to die as a rebel against God. And that is the only way to become pure in God's sight. It's the only way to become pure in God's sight. If you're purified by faith in Jesus Christ, by his grace, then to you, all things are pure. Paul writes, to the pure, all things are pure. And that means if your faith is in Jesus Christ, nothing you do can defile you in God's sight. In a sense, everything you do is inescapably tainted by sin already. But God does not count that against you because he sees you in Christ, his perfect son. All your impurities have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. But if you're trying to purify yourself by keeping the law, not believing, not trusting in the purification Jesus offers in the gospel, then you will never be pure. 
Your conscience will never be fully satisfied and never cleansed because your motives for being good are sinful motives. You can't fix that. You can't clean that up. Even though you're trying to do good works, you're doing it out of disobedience, which is detestable to God. And he says you're unfit for any good work. The elder in the church has to be able to recognize legalism. And he has to be able to refute it with the truth of the gospel. The elder's job as a shepherd, Jesus is the great shepherd, and the elder here on earth is just an under-shepherd. But he's a shepherd. And the job as a shepherd includes defending the flock against wolves, which Jesus said would come dressed in sheep's clothing. If you can't spot a wolf in sheep's clothing, you shouldn't be an elder. You need to be able to see when teachers in the church are trying to motivate people toward holiness by guilt or pride. Rather than saying with Paul in the next chapter, his letter to Titus, it's the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness. Jesus gave himself up to redeem us, to purify us for good works. It's the grace of God that changes our lives, not the fear of men, not trying to get ahead, not pride. You need to be able to see that the self-righteousness in the culture wars, that that people want to fix our country by fixing those people out there, you need to see how that's legalism. You need to see that when Christians are angry with God, they have a sense of entitlement, that they deserve better from God. When they joylessly pursue their duty as a Christian, when they come across as condescending or uh, maybe they're reluctant to share the faith with people like that, or they're depressed because they're not good enough for God, all of these are symptoms. They're strong indicators of legalism. If you can't see the legalism in official Roman Catholic teachings about justification. If you can't see the legalism in popular evangelical teachings about sanctification, if you can't see the legalism in regular Reformed folks' attitudes and things like theonomy, if you can't see the legalism there and address those errors with the gospel of grace, then you probably shouldn't be an elder. The job of an elder is to proclaim and preserve the graciousness of the gospel. The graciousness of the gospel for every area, every part of life in the church. Because that grace, that gospel, is the only hope any of us have. And it's really hard for us to know when we've wandered away from it. So, how do you grow in your ability to detect legalism and to refute it with the true gospel, you start by seeing the problem in yourself first. Right? You ask God to help you see your own self-righteousness so that you can repent of it and throw yourself at God's mercy. You'll probably need the help of a good friend because we put up all kinds of blockades and smoke screens uh, in our own lives in order to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not self-righteous. <laughs> probably need the help of a good friend. Uh, Trust me, there's a plank in your eye and your friend can see it. Your friend can see it. 
This is one of those areas where it's really helpful to confess our sins to one another and to accept one another graciously. And it's only in the, the assurance of pardon, the assurance of forgiveness found in the gospel that we have any courage to do that at all. That we have any courage to face the corruption that's deep down inside of us. But once you're persuaded that God really does love you, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, but for Jesus' sake, God really loves you for Jesus' sake, then it's okay to let down your guard and look at your own heart. And what you'll find in there is exactly the same kind of stuff you'll find anywhere out there in other people or in their teachings. And once you're familiar with the process of getting down to the roots with yourself and applying the gospel to your own self-righteousness, then you'll start to see how to address that, that problem in other people, refuting their error in a gracious manner. In a gracious manner. Paul writes to 2 Timothy, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. If God granted repentance from self-righteousness to someone like you, then you can show some patience and pray for the same thing for other people. It might work. God might do it. But sometimes people just aren't willing to give up their error. They're clinging to their self-righteousness. It's all they've got. They won't let go. It's too important. They'll lose too much if they do. They're teaching it for shameful gain. They'll lose power and prestige if they give up their legalism. When that person fits Paul's description here of of being insubordinate, you know, being restless under the authority in the church, the authority of God's word, they're a deceiver, upsetter of families, teaching for shameful gain the things they ought not to teach, then you stand against their teaching and you take away their platform and you do everything you can to silence them. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 3, Avoid foolish and ignorant controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinfully self-condemned. We're not messing around here in the church, right? It's a matter of life and death when someone distorts the gospel with legalism. And we all need to grow in our ability to see when that's happening and know how to handle it according to God's word if we're truly interested in making the gospel of Jesus Christ the center of our lives individually and as a church. But it's something that elders especially need to have experience with in order to be able to hold firm to the trustworthy word of grace so that He can give instruction, give sound, healthy teaching uh, to those who need it and to to refute and and rebuke those who need it, those who contradict the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I'm afraid of myself most of the time when I think about 
my sin, my self-righteousness, the way that I am blind to my own motives, to the legalism that uh, runs so much of what I do, I'm afraid of myself. Would you help me, would you help my friends here to escape the trap of legalism more and more in our lives? Would you present the gospel to us in an appealing and winning way that we would turn away from all of our self-righteousness and find our righteousness, our purity alone in the blood of Jesus Christ who lived for us and died for us so that we would be made right with you, so that we would be cleansed, so that we would be transformed and equipped for every good work. We pray that you would make the gospel to fill our hearts and our minds in such a way that there's no room anymore for thoughts of self-righteousness. We throw ourselves on you for your mercy. You are a merciful God. You are a loving and gracious God, and we're glad to have you as our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.